Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Anna Yusum is a board-certified psychiatrist and a lecturer at Yale Medical School, where she's creating a mental health and spirituality program. Pretty cool, right? She completed her undergraduate education at Stanford, where she studied biology and philosophy, then attended Yale Medical School and the NYU Residency Training Program in Psychiatry. And she's the best-selling author of Fulfilled, The Science of Spirituality and How It Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. Anna, welcome. Thank you so much, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So it's great to have you back. And so you wrote about this in Mind Buddy Green. There's a great article, but what a lot of people maybe don't know is you actually, you and your husband had COVID and you made a full recovery. You guys are fine. And we're not going to talk about all the things you did to recover. But what, what I'm curious about is you said you've had almost like a, a liken to a spiritual awakening. So talk about what that, what you mean and what that looks like for you guys. Yeah, I think that any sort of darkness that comes into our life, whether intentional, unintentional, something we brought upon ourselves or something that just comes without us having any control over it is something that either we can fall prey to and have a lot of hardship and difficulty around, or we can choose to resurrect ourselves and figure out how to move on. So for us, COVID was exactly that. It was so scary. We got it um, right at the beginning. And my husband had a really bad case. He had to be in the hospital. And we just didn't know the direction it was going to go. Thank God he was fine. He got out. He didn't have to be on a ventilator, nothing like that. And we did indeed, over time, make a full recovery. But for us, what it did was it made us really reconsider our lives. So now a few months out, six months later, we decided to, as so many people have, pick up and move. We moved to a country home in Connecticut. I'm on faculty at Yale, so it actually made sense for us not to to be close to here. And we're happier than we've ever been. And I was telling you right before that it's not like we were unhappy in New York City. My husband had lived there for 34 years. I'd lived in Manhattan for 14 years, but it was just that the shift that was brought upon by circumstances completely outside of our control ended up leading to really this revelation. And we, if it hadn't been for COVID, would never have been here, but we wake up so much happier. And really the basis of it is this deep connection to nature. We have space, we're able to every day go hiking in our woods, and it's just the most amazing thing. So... For us, that was really the awakening. Out of darkness came great light and a life change that for us was a really positive thing. And what, what's so interesting about your work is you weave spirituality with psychiatry. And look, there's a mental, there was a mental health crisis before COVID. It's, it's significantly worse. And for me personally, I, I do believe, look, it's my buddy green. We believe everything's connected. And so the idea that spirituality can function alongside psychiatry is, of course, it makes total sense. Like meaning, purpose, significance, belief in something bigger than yourself, like these things are all interrelated. So I'm curious in, in your mind, like how do they work together? And in our new world, is it absolutely critical that they work together? as we try to climb out of the, this mental health epidemic? I think those are beautiful questions. And I believe, similar to yourself, that they are 
completely linked. And when people have both together, it accelerates their healing and it enables for a more thorough healing, a deeper healing, a faster healing. That doesn't mean that you can't heal or you can't find strength within yourself if you don't believe in God or if you're not a spiritual person at all, or if you are totally a spiritual person and want to just go that way and not do anything with the science or the psychology of it. The thing with my profession in helping people to overcome darkness and depression, anxiety, is really meeting people where they're at, whether that be if they're a deeply spiritual person, because a lot of people, they don't go to doctors with depression. They go to their priests. They go to their rabbis. Those are often the frontline workers, especially in crises like this. And I've spoken to many rabbis, to many priests who right now are fielding a capacity of people in their congregation greater than they've ever had to work with before. And in the same way, I think healing proceeds in many ways. And some people, their first thing, I'm really depressed. I need meds. And if that's their worldview, if that's how they see things, okay. So we work with them, we meet them where they're at, we'll prescribe medication, and then maybe work with them slowly over time to help them see other ways, whether it be psychological, spiritual, to also grow, to grow beyond a purely biological model of depression or of the mind. So they're deeply connected. There's tons of data showing that they're connected, but really everybody's worldview is so individual. And so I like to just meet the people where they're at. So... Pre-COVID, we were already anxiety, I would say, that we're, we're living in generation anxiety pre-COVID. Now we've got COVID. I'm curious, pre-COVID, what do you think was the root cause of this anxiety that just seemed to be pervasive? I think part of it is just human nature and the fact that as human beings, we will have anxiety. As human beings, there are gonna be existential struggles with which we deal. When you conceptualize existential struggles, I like to put it in this four-part system that Dr. Irvin Yalom, one of my mentors, created. And that's that all human struggles stem from these four existential issues. One, our quest for purpose and meaning in our life. Two is our struggle with our own aloneness in this world. Because even if we're with others, we are at the end of the day, ultimately still alone. Three, our fear of death. Because, and not just death of our own life or our body, but all death that, or fear of endings because everything at the end of the day ends. And then the third thing is the freedom to do with our life, that which we want. So our struggle to really own our power and with freedom comes great responsibility. So balancing freedom and responsibility. So I would say that it's from those four things that the majority of anxiety stems. And you can think with COVID, whereas the, the anxiety has accelerated exponentially or has gone up exponentially, which of those has been put into question? And I think in many ways, all of them, people don't know if they're going to live to see tomorrow or if the people who are most dear to them are going to be okay. People's purpose and meaning by virtue of having to lose their jobs, having to change their identity for so many people. Their job and their life is the very basic form of their identity, like their day-to-day -day life. And COVID has really put that into question. And how much freedom do you have when you're in quarantine? What kind of responsibility do you have to your family, to your loved ones in a state like this when it's just very hard to, to know what the future holds? So ultimately, anxiety, I think, stems from those four things and has only been exacerbated because of the pandemic. So... There's clearly a mental health epidemic. There was a frightening CDC statistic that one out of four 
So approximately, I think it was 26% 18 to 24-year-olds considered suicide over the summer. It's just frightening. Where do we go from here? How, how do we, you know, there are things in life we can't control and we can control. And unfortunately, the, the pandemic is something we don't really have much control over. So where, where do we go? How do we dig out of this from a mental health perspective? And where, what role does spirituality play? Yeah, it's a huge question and such an important question because you're exactly right that we don't know what the future holds and especially young people who really may not have had as much life experience to be able to have some hardships to overcome under their belt. And so this is their first hardship. And this is a pretty big, pervasive, extensive hardship with which they're dealing. And they're like, is life even worth living? And already suicides have been going up in our country and in the world. And so for people in their mind, they see that as a way out. And I think it's helping people to reframe and to see what challenge is part of life. Uncertainty is part of life. Uncertainty is really the thing that is gonna turn coal into a diamond. Whatever pressure we put upon ourselves is the thing that's gonna enable us to grow and transform and become the best version of ourselves now and forever. And so that's really what I'm helping my young people with is to find the purpose in this. We can't always be happy. Life isn't always joyful and peaceful. Life is also sometimes crazy and full of uncertainty, fear, anxiety, doubt. And so it's in looking within and finding that source of strength that we often didn't know existed and tapping into that stillness, that's what helps people get through. And so how do you do that? You do that in many different ways. First, helping people to find a sense of purpose in all this. For so many people, their sense of purpose has been quelched or squashed because of this, but because young people have gone to college and they can't find jobs or they've gone to college, they're ready to get on the work into the workforce and instead they're stuck at home with mom and dad. And they're like, what kind of life is this and how long is this gonna last? But there's other ways to find purpose. And if what's being asked of them is to find happiness in their present environment, they have to look within and find the strength to resurrect that, to resurrect themselves and to see that you can be happy even in those circumstances, or maybe not happy, but at least patient and present and mindful. And so that's the first thing. I think the other thing is having deliberate social contact with a community and with people. And there's tons of scientific evidence showing that is what helps people through the darkest of times. Going out of your way, especially in this quarantine culture, to connect to people. If it's not in person with your mask six feet apart, then it should be on any kind of social you know, network community, but really having people that you're talking to on a regular basis. And that could also include a therapist, that can also include healers or individuals who are helping you through this. And the third is seeing if you let this transform, you are gonna come out a stronger, more evolved person with higher consciousness. It's just inevitable. But sometimes you have to fall in order to be built back up. So. What is what I love about you is you're the bridge between both worlds in terms of science and spirituality. And I'm fascinated about where those worlds intersect. And I'm curious, what is what does science say with regards to spirituality and spirituality's ability to help people who are anxious, help people who are depressed? What, what does science say about spirituality's role in terms of our mental health? Yeah, science shows that 
when individuals have some sort of spirituality, whether it be a spiritual practice or a spiritual belief or health promoting spiritual rituals or behaviors, all that helps in healing. Individuals who go to church are less likely to get sick, are more likely to recover more quickly from cancer. There's even evidence for the power of prayer. When you pray for somebody, their healing can actually happen much faster. There's power in that way. And there's a whole science to prayer. It's very powerful. And there's also science showing that when you pray for another, your own depression or your own anxiety is more likely to lift because the very act of service is able to decrease people's feelings of loneliness or the depressed or anxious feelings that they can have. On so many levels, it's been shown that having any kind of spiritual, whether practice, belief, or just daily ritual helps. How, how would you define spirituality? The way that I define it is a connection to something greater than oneself, which could be for some people, God, and that's a more ritualized societally, um, like social convention of spirituality. But it can also be your something greater, it could be mother nature, source, the universe, a sense of interconnectedness, your collective unconscious, or even a set of transcendent values that help to elevate consciousness, like hope and trust and perseverance. And so all of those are different ways of having a spiritual connection, but all equally powerful. So you mentioned hope, trust, per perseverance, God. What would you say to someone who may have lost hope and says, where's God in this crisis? And how do you maintain spirituality, hope, faith, all these things in a time of such uncertainty when the world in, some, in many people's eyes, I'm, I'm a hope guy, I'm an optimist to a fault, but where many people would say, you know what, where, where is God? This is terrible out here. Where is God show up? Whoever, whatever I believe in, show up. Where are you? You're asleep at the wheel. Yeah, that's a great question. And whenever there is pandemics, crazy things, holocausts, people either lose their faith or they find faith. It's really a turning point. And your relationship with God and your relationship with faith isn't something necessarily that should be contingent upon the presence of crisis or the absence of crisis. It's something that you can turn to and that you can relate to in any time in your life. But oftentimes it's the crisis points that are going to crystallize what your relationship really is. And so the answer, where's God in all this? We all have to answer that for ourselves. My answer to that is oftentimes God will create this so that we as human beings could look within ourselves and ask, what is it that we as human beings did? Or what is it that we can do that and shift inside of us in order to affect what is outside of us? Because often what is outside is a reflection, what is most deeply within. So if we see violence, hatred, divisiveness outside, we look inside. In what ways do I embody those qualities and what can I as a human being individually do to shift some of this, to elevate my own consciousness, my own perspective, and then to see that reflected outwardly? So you once told us when people think about God, certain parts of the brain light up. When people pray, certain parts of the brain light up. It, can you unpack that a little bit? And also I'm curious, is meditation do, or breath work or any other practice, is it similar effects? And just explain that for us. Absolutely. So at the end of the day, whatever relationship we have with God, it's something that can also be broken down to a very 
biological, neurologic process. And our brain, different parts of our brain are going to light up with all the different things we do. And certainly our connection to God is going to light up certain parts of our brain. Now, that's actually what I find to be most interesting is that connection between the neurobiology of it and the spirituality. And it's interesting because as a psychiatrist who specializes in that interface, I have a lot of patients talk to me about how their relationship with God, for instance, has changed by going on antidepressants or has changed with certain kinds of anxiety medications. And it's absolutely fascinating. But a lot of people, what antidepressants do is for many people, they will reduce anxiety and they will open people's heart. They'll desensitize people a little bit to the intensity of their emotions. Some people say, then you're not really feeling what you're feeling. You're hiding from life or running away from life. But I would say to them, sometimes life could be so difficult that it's certain people need a little bit of that shield. And you can only know, unless you've been through that, it's hard to judge another person for their pain. That's the important point with that. But people say that on antidepressants, they actually feel some people more connected to God because their heart is more open. The crazy tumult of some of their lives is able to go down temporarily and they're able to really just be more present and more focused. Essentially, it helps people with meditation. It helps people with their other forms of interconnectedness. Now, is that the case for everybody? Not at all. For some people, actually getting off their medications was a deeply spiritual experience. People come to me all the time to get off medications because I use spirituality and I use other techniques in order to help them through. So we will use supplements, we'll use exercise, we'll use meditation, we'll use other spiritual practices and help people come off their meds. And by virtue of it being such a deeply spiritual process, sometimes that will enable people to feel more connected to God. And so it's a very interesting interface and for everybody it's a very individual and different journey. So there's a, I read this book, I think, God, 20 years ago, but I read it and loved it at the time. Wayne Dyer book titled, There's a Spiritual Solution to Every Problem. So without doing a critique of the book, I'm curious, do you think there's a spiritual solution to every problem? What's your take on that proclamation? I definitely believe that personally. There is a spiritual solution to every problem, but I don't think that, for instance, something biological or taking an antidepressant is going against spirituality. I have patients who tell me, I don't know whether I should be on these meds, but then I think that God created doctors and doctors created these medications. So medications are also spiritual. It's very interesting how people think about this. So I do believe that every problem can be solved. And as Einstein said, it's often solved by a different consciousness than that which created it. And is there... I also, you know, don't think that spirituality is just God. I think spirituality actually is all encompassing, inclusive of everything in our day to day lives. And we don't need to be on a mountaintop meditating to be spiritual, but we really need to be engaged in our world and taking parts in our world to the best of our ability and using for our healing every tool in our toolbox, certainly spirituality and any other tool as well. 100% agreed. And it's a shame that I, there's a stigma around some of this medication and sure it's probably overprescribed, but saves lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's true. It often is overprescribed. And then in certain situations it's underprescribed, right? Because you wonder some of these people who 
have been suicidal, et cetera, what if they did have the right medication? And yeah, and it's very sad in that way. But I'm certainly not there to, I'm certainly not here either to push medication because people come to me all the time to get off of meds. But I'm also not anti-meds in any way as so many people are because I have seen them save lives and really transform people and enable them to live their life more fully. It's why you're here and why we love what you do is you're treating the whole person and it's a, it's an integrated approach. You have to treat the, the root cause. You have to treat the person, the spirituality, you know, as we talk about the, the hope and purpose, these are big things. <laughs> things. They are like the things. And so do you, if you were to do your ranking of what you see, I'm curious, we'll throw COVID out the window for now of like the, the big, when, when you see people, when you talk to people, like what are the big things that you're seeing a lot of where it's like, oh man, there's just a lot of people are missing a lot of purpose right now. Or what is it like the, the big, the big things you're seeing? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the new patients that have been coming to me, it's all, if I were to like, you know, put it under some umbrella, the umbrella is I want to grow. I want to grow and I want to grow now. And this is the pain that I am here in your office or in when this telehealth session with you in order to grow, help me to grow. And so that could be a pain from, I realize I've been drinking too much. My drinking behavior is getting under control. It's only gotten worse with COVID. I need you to help me stop. Or I'm in this relationship and I'm realizing that this relationship actually, especially because we've been on top of each other for six months already, is showing me that this is not where I want to be. I need to move beyond it. And I'm really scared. I don't know how to do it, but I know in my soul that this is what I need to do. I need you to help me. Or my business is falling apart and I'm considering suicide. I recently had this call from a former patient. This is very, people very much experiencing this and it's very sad and very scary. And so how do I move beyond this? And thank God he's on the other side of it now. Thank God. But it's very scary. Or someone I deeply love just died from COVID. How do I move on with my life? I've had a number of patients, whether it be, and I've had some friends as well, whose significant others and parents have died from COVID. And it's very real and very sad and very scary. So the umbrella is, I want to grow. How do I use this to grow? But they come with a lot of pain. So how do I transform this pain into growth? And so for people listening, I'll go back to anxiety because I think anxiety shows up for a lot of people when they're struggling and then leads to other things, if you will. Like what, what advice, whether it's tips, exercises, do you have for people who are, I'll, th I'll call it mild anxiety, who are struggling with feelings of anxiety? Because it seems a lot of people are struggling right now. Tons of people are struggling with anxiety right now. Absolutely. And the first tip is, what is it that you're feeling? Put it into words. Either talk to someone or start writing. Start getting it out of you. Start putting it into language as a form of releasing it. And then let's talk about the different ways in which we can transform emotions. And one of the ways we can think about anxiety and a lot of anxiety people have been feeling is really fear. And fear is a perceived, a sense of danger, a feeling of a sense of danger, whether real or perceived. And if it's perceived as opposed to real, then it's anxiety and stress as opposed to survival fear. And so how do you then transform that? There's a number of ways, and there's actually four ways. 
And those four ways are first expression, which is what I was talking about. So you write it down, you speak it, you talk to people, you just figure out what you need to do in order to move beyond. That's the first one. Then the second way is suppression and repression. And these are defense mechanisms we as human beings have, whether they are conscious or unconscious, to put difficult emotions aside in order to be able to move on. If you suppress your feelings, they can later be felt as irritability, mood swings, muscle tension in your head or neck, headaches, cramps, insomnia, indigestion, high blood pressure. If you repress your feelings, there's so much guilt and fear around the feeling that it's not even consciously felt at all. And so you can instantly thrust that feeling into the unconscious as soon as it threatens to emerge. So in that feeling is then handled in a variety of ways, and those are our unconscious projections. Or, and some of the most common forms of the unconscious ways in which we handle these feelings are denial, you're angry, I'm not angry at all, or projection itself. And projection is when you're not able to acknowledge your own feelings, but you see it in another person. So that's another form. And then the third form is escape. People escape emotions all the time, and that's through drugs, alcohol, getting on their gadgets, whatever it is, ways of not feeling. And sometimes they need to do that. That's what they need in order to be able to take everything that's coming at them. But sometimes those escapes can become problematic in and of themselves. And that's they come here not because of actually what's beneath, but because of the escape itself. Like, I am drinking more than I want to right now, and I don't know how to stop. And finally, another way of dealing which perhaps is the healthiest way of dealing with difficult feelings is surrendering and letting go. And to do that, we want to focus on the emotion and the feelings, not the thoughts. You want to actually ignore the thoughts when you're going through the process of surrender, because the thoughts for the purpose of this are actually only rationalizations of the mind trying to explain the presence of feelings. So you want to let go of also the fear and the guilt about the feeling. Sometimes you're like, we shouldn't feel this. I'm feeling like I need, you know, time for myself, but I shouldn't be feeling this because I'm a mother and a wife and, or I'm feeling like I'm overwhelmed and I'm feeling selfish, but you know what? You might need that right now. So you want to become aware of the feeling and you want to be with that feeling without judging it, without fearing it, without resisting it, without venting it, without condemning it and without moralizing about it. See the judgment and you see that it's just a feeling. And then a feeling that's not resisted will eventually disappear because the energy behind it will dissipate. So surrendering. So just to recap, the four ways of dealing with feelings are escape, expression, either suppression or repression, and then the healthiest way, which is surrendering or letting go. Surrendering and letting go is almost the cornerstone of every religion but alcoholics anonymous too it's this idea of surrender there's something else and, and there's it's very difficult even for people who are extraordinarily spiritual or religious sometimes but it's powerful it's so powerful and the reason it's so difficult is because we as human beings like control and surrender is actually admitting and accepting the fact that we do not have control over this but that's also the most powerful path because the point at which we can do that is the point at which we can open up to something greater than ourselves to come in and help transform a situation that we can take the burden off of us. What do you do when you're having a bad day? 
I try very hard to surrender, but I really try to go through a lot of these processes. I will call someone who is dear to me to talk to them. I'll speak to my husband about it. I'll go hiking in our woods to try to dissipate some of the energy. Sometime I'll, sometimes I'll go into my own escape activities. I'll be on my phone and, or watch a movie just so as not to think about it, to create some space in order so I could better handle it. Yeah, at the end of the day, really, it's surrender and it's having to sit with those difficult emotions. And so a medita- I have a meditation practice where I'm able to sit. I try to do it 20 minutes twice a day with these emotions and just let them come and feel them in different parts of my body and breathe into them. And when they come up afterwards, I like to journal, I like to write about it because expression is also, for me, a powerful way of letting some of this go. But it's not easy. Sometimes I fall short. Often I fall short. And we just do the best that we can every day. So you've mentioned that you work with a lot of physicians in your practice and physician burnout was a real thing before COVID. And now I can't imagine. And what's also interesting too, pre-COVID is burnout was a very real thing. Mental health issues were running rampant in that community. A lot of people didn't know about pre-COVID and I can't imagine what that looks like now. And so these are the people we need to take care of. These are the people taking care of us. They're on the front lines. And so can you just talk about this issue uh, a little bit? And then also, how, how can we help support our people and healthcare workers, medical professionals, specifically during this time? Because we need them. Very much so. Very much. And physicians, health workers, I have a ton of doctors, nurses, healers, um, therapists in my practice. And the hallmark of this personality type who is a healer is they're amazing at taking care of others. That's why they've become healers. That's why they're doing what they're doing, but they're often not as good at taking care of themselves. And so the work that I do with them is helping them learn how to love themselves, have more self-compassion, more self-love, and really set the boundaries that they need in order to survive. Sometimes that means pushing back on the hospital system, pushing back on their bosses, pushing back on their patients saying, I need more space, I need more time. And when the pandemic was going on, like at the beginning, the very beginning, it was completely overwhelming in New York City because I had a lot of people on the front lines being asked to do things that they felt very uncomfortable doing, treating patients while not having appropriate PPE, things of that nature, and they felt trapped. And I had one poor nurse say to me, I didn't sign up for a suicide mission. Thank God she's okay. But still, it was a very dangerous, crazy time and one that was unprecedented because there was really nothing that we've ever gone through where people were put in such danger day after day and that created so much anxiety. But in terms of what we need to do for these people, we need to give them outlets. We need to give them outlets for self-care. We need to give them the kind of support they need. We need to give them mental health services. We need to destigmatize mental health services because often, even though these people are in medicine, they're the ones who need to be the strong ones. So it's not always okay to seek help, to go say that I'm feeling depressed. I'm not feeling well. I don't know if I can go to work today. And you don't wanna let your patients down. Trust me, I know what that feels like. When my husband and I both had COVID, I didn't take a day off work because that was when the pandemic was spiking and my patients were all going crazy. And so I was have, I'd have my fever spikes, maybe move a patient a little back. I'm sorry, I'm having a fever spike. I'm going to call you back in a half. <laughs> and then you just keep working and you just 
have to get through. You feel like you have to get through. For me, that sense of purpose also was what helped me get through COVID. And thank God I had enough strength to see patients. But yeah, I think that the self-care is just crucial and giving people more permission to care for themselves in that way. And so for just in general, for, for anyone who's just trying to up-level their mental health, take care of themselves. And I know it's hard to generalize, but I have to ask, is there one thing that like everyone should be doing now to make sure their mental health is in check, just taking care of themselves? It's so funny. The answer to that question, I believe, varies for every individual. And if you were to ask a given person what thing they need to do to improve their mental health, they would know the answer. Like, I bet you if I were to ask you, Jason, what do you need to do to improve your mental health? What do you need to do? You would have three answers, one, two, three, right? One of those things, I'll speak for me, and I think I'll make a generalization. I think we're all, we're social animals. We need connection. And we had a guest on the podcast say hates the term social distancing. It should be physical distancing because we need to connect with people. And this podcast is going to air around the holidays, holiday seasons here. And I think it's, and so I would think that everyone try to connect, like connect with people, specifically if like you're not doing well, if like just connect, like Zoom, Skype, FaceTime, whatever the hell it is, connect. And I, and I, and I'm concerned about this is more of a problem than a solution, but that's the one thing everyone, I think people need. I think we've decided we need to connect with people. And I'm concerned the holidays where maybe people can't get on a flight to visit a loved one or, and who knows, the world changes so fast. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? But I'm curious what your take is on our need for whether it's IRL in real life connection or human connection and the role that plays on a spiritual level, on a mental level, an emotional level, just everything. What's your take on our need to connect? Yeah, I think IRL connection is such a real thing because, and this is why I think for people, they've been getting more and more animals. So many people have adopted pets during this because they need something soft and cuddly to hold. They need something to cuddle up against them to pet, especially if somebody is single. But it's interesting. I have had a lot of people meet their significant others during COVID. I've had a few patients who found amazing partners through internet dating, et cetera. That has happened, even though it seems like it shouldn't, but it has. But in real life connection, if people can do this safely, is just such a beautiful thing. Hugging another human being, looking in their eyes. There's something very real. Now, I also have friends who don't feel comfortable with that, who have maybe an autoimmune condition or underlying conditions, and we don't have a vaccine yet. The therapeutics are questionable, unless, of course, you're the president and can get every single therapeutic (laughs) available, then they're not questionable. But I understand also how some people may still limit their connections. And so... If that's the case, you have to use whatever we have available. And if in real life isn't that available to you right now, use just even being able to see each other. Use your FaceTime, use your Zoom, just talk to people, hear their voice. It's, yeah, because we need, we're social creatures. We're not made to be in a vacuum. And so this is why the pandemic's been so difficult. So you mentioned seeing people who are realizing they're in a relationship that's that they're not happy with. You also mentioned starting new relationships, relation, relationships moving faster, something you've talked about or this, the, the, the idea of finding your soulmate. So I'm curious, how do you we'll talk about for a moment, like how do you define soulmate? And do you think, 
Yeah, let's start there. How do, how do you define soulmate? Yeah. So before I define soulmate, let's define soul, which is an interesting concept because the soul isn't something that most doctors talk about. And it's actually not something that I ever talked about in medical school or was taught about it. In medical school, you're taught about the brain, the body, maybe the heart, but not kind of like the emotional, psychological heart, but the heart that pumps blood. But the soul, um, when I was a resident, I started traveling around the world, asking people, what is this other part of our consciousness or our being that nobody's talking about? What is the soul? And I got a lot of different answers. And my favorite answer to that came from a Mexican shaman named Fernando Broca. And he said that the soul is comprised of two parts. The first part is that which encapsulates your uniqueness or the way in which you're meant to share your light with this world in only the way that you can. So it encapsulates your unique set of talents, abilities, skills, interests, your past histories, your past lifetimes, if you believe in that. The other part of the soul is that which connects us to everybody and everything, which is what people often refer to when they say we're all one unified soul. So our soul is both our uniqueness and our interconnectedness. And so a soulmate is other people in our lives that can help us to live our soul's purpose in this world. And they can help us not soulmate relationships aren't always the easiest relationships, but they're those that are going to force us to grow. And they're those people with whom we can share the most light in this world. And so in terms of love relationships, sometimes you'll meet someone and you'll feel like a deep soul connection. You'll feel as though I've known this person before. You'll have a deja vu moment or you just feel so comfortable around them. They just feel like home. That doesn't mean it's going to necessarily work out. This is going to be the person with whom you're going to have a long term relationship but it definitely means that there's something there. And I think we have many soulmates in our lives. We can marry a soulmate. We can work with a soulmate. Our parents are often, or family is often soulmates, but we wanna, we're drawn to people with whom we have that deep connection that we can't really pinpoint in any other way other than to say, this is just a deep soul connection. Your definition reminds me very much of Gary Zukov's Seat of the Soul. I love Gary Zukov, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, relationships are front and center right now for a lot of people, as you mentioned. What's your advice to people who are going one way or the one way or the other? There are some people that are really struggling and they're breaking up, they're getting divorced and so forth. And there are other people that are going fast and furious. And, and like, what, what's the, <laughs> there's good and there's bad to both. What, what's your advice to I know it's hard to generalize, but like to people who are trying to assess whether this is the one or it's time to move on. I would tell them this is a wonderful time to do it and that the pandemic is really bringing up the most important questions for people, whatever that is. And it's leading to changes much faster than if we were to continue with the status quo. And so if people are bringing up these questions for themselves, I say, wonderful, ask those questions. Don't shy away from them. Don't be afraid from those questions. Go to therapy, go to couples therapy and really start to be true to yourself and listen to your own voice. Sometimes it could be that people feel like, oh my God, we're just, we've never been so close. And in that closeness, you realize maybe we're not as compatible as we thought, or you can be so close and this is really hard, but then you're able to work through it. And then you're like, I have even more respect for this person that I ever knew. And I'm able to find a place within myself that I've never tapped into before. So I think not to shy away from the questions, to really go deep and to allow yourself to 
know what really is your truth. Do you think that, I, I spoke to someone once whose perspective was there are couples that some of them should be breaking up and there are others that are absolutely making the wrong decision. <laughs> and do you think that, I'm curious, do you, and on the flip side, there are couples that are going fast and furious and that's great. And there are ones where I'm like, slow down. And I've heard that anecdotally from a couple of people. What, what's your general take? Yeah, well, I think depending on the relationship, I mean, and how long you've been together, whether you're married, whether you're dating, whether you have a family, whether you have children, things of that nature, I think all of those are considerations. And the fact that the questions are coming up, whether it leads to people to stay together or ultimately to split, I welcome the questions. And the questions are an opportunity to take the relationship to the next level. Always they are. Or to take your own life to the next level. And that's a really important thing. It's often less important whether people end up staying together or splitting. It's more important who they become through that process and how they help each other to grow and transform. It's about the growth. And so I'll, in closing, I'll tap into the, the pessimists and optimists in you. I'll try. But what, what worries you? And on the flip side, what excites you right now? Yeah, what worries me is really what you said, the fact that mental health is declining and suicides are going up. I have never had so many calls from new patients who have either had a suicide attempt or I've said this to you, somebody, a fiance committed suicide or they know somebody who committed suicide. There's so many calls having to do with suicide. It's overwhelming and it's just heartbreaking. So this really worries me. And that also is what excites me because it means that on the flip side, People are open and ready for healing. We need some major healing as a society, as individuals, as a nation. And that's, I think, where we have to go. And the exciting part is that there is potential here. It's only when we're raw and having fallen down that really we're open to that other side, to starting to surrender, to starting to look at ourselves and our lives in ways that we never have before and starting to tap into strengths we never knew we had and use resources that we otherwise never would have used. So it breaks down our existing structures. That's what COVID has done. That's what this whole pandemic situation has done. That's what the race riots and all the craziness that's going on in our world, that's what it's doing. It's leading us to break down existing structures so that we can build those structures up anew that are stronger and enable us to lead better, healthier, more authentic lives. Amen to that. We'll close there. Anna, thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. It was great to talk to you as always.